are listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene, online at bethanynaz.org. Well, good morning. How we doing? I tell the guys on our teaching team and girls that the better the congregation knows you, the better speaker you'll be. So let's take a minute or two. This is like coming home for me. I, uh, just in the last couple of minutes here, I was uh, in Sunday school class before this, and uh, uh, I grew up in Dallas, Texas, so not too far from here. Uh, spent a few years in uh, East Texas in a little town called Nacogdoches, Texas, and uh, came back to Dallas, graduated high school. 1978, I came to this campus just in Sunday school a minute ago. Uh, families from Nacogdoches, the Hughes family, my mom's here, so she'll appreciate hearing this in real time. The Hughes family, their kids and grandkids are here. Uh, the Pitts family, yeah, yeah, so all that is happening. And I recognize some of you, I can look out there and this is like coming home to me. So when I came on this campus in 1978, it, it was just a, an incredible time in the life of Bethany Nazarene College. Uh, over in the religion department, Malcolm Shelton and Lyle Flinner and Rob Staples, they were still teaching and... They were at the end of their careers, and halfway through my time at Bethany Nazarene College, we had a transition, and Roger Hahn came, and Stephen Gunter, and, and the whole religion department changed dramatically, and to be impacted by those uh, teachers at the end of their career, and to be impacted by those professors at the beginning of their careers has really shaped me in a huge way, but more than that's the relationships, and the time that I spent here was just incredibly valuable to me. I still look back at it and think it's just a, one of the very best seasons in my life. And this was my church home. Uh, I came here my freshman year, first Sunday that I was here, and uh, I stayed all four years. This was the place that I worshipped, and, uh, and it impacted me in a, in a huge way. So in, in so many ways, I feel like I'm coming home, and I appreciate that, and I appreciate this place. And I don't run into people in California very often that I share great history with, uh, and so it's a it's one of those things that you take for granted until you don't have it, and it's incredibly valuable. I have four daughters. My oldest is 36. Uh, another daughter is 30. I have a daughter who's 25, and my youngest is 23. If you're keeping track, that is a lot of women. <laughs> and if you have a lot of uh, daughters, you have a tendency to acquire son-in-laws, and so I also have a, a stable now of son-in-laws, three and uh, I really foolishly believe that when the girls began to marry and, uh, you know, more men began to be a part of our nuclear family, that things would even out. But it turns out that's not really true. Uh, in fact, uh, we sort of just have a similar experience together now. Uh, we sort of quietly just lose as a team. <laughs> and uh, you can feel it in the room. You know, we just sort of nod to each other. Yeah. Sorry, dude, this is your time. See you on the other side. Hope you make it. And I know it's quick into the conversation to get controversial and political, but let me just jump in with this. Uh, I really believe that Whataburger is better than In-N-Out. Yeah, thank you. Pick a side. I mean, you know, that might not be that controversial here because I don't know. Do you have an In-N-Out here? Oh, they're coming. 
Whataburger's better. I want to read this to you because I believe it. You might have read it before. Let's establish something right at the start. I don't know much. It's not just rhetoric. It's a hard-fought and dearly won belief about myself. Don't think I'm being self-effacing here. I don't think you know much either. I don't think the talking heads on television know much. I'm going to slow down and read that again because you're not listening. I don't think the talking heads on television know much. I don't think that people who write books know much. When I read something that makes me come to life or hear someone talk that, talking that engages me, the words are seldom laced with absolutes and truisms. What I respond to emotionally is when someone gently talks to me about what they humbly believe about as they process the complexities of life. I don't think we know much. I think we pretend to. I think we find security in acting like we know a lot of things, but I don't think we know much. But we do believe some things. And we can believe those things passionately. And so I just wanted to share with you some things that I really believe. Uh, I, I think that, you know, I believe that we ought to look up a lot more than we're looking around. Proverbs twenty nine eighteen, where there is no vision, the people perish, but he that keepeth the law, happy is he. That's the, that's the, NI, or the uh, King James Version. I think it expands a little when you get into the NIV. Where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint, but blessed is the one who heeds wisdom's instruction. We ought to be looking up. We need to be having revelation from God. What helps us is when we look up instead of around, because I don't know if you know this, but when we look up, there's a source of wisdom. But when we look around, there is constant disappointment. There's constantly that reality that we don't all agree, that we don't all see things exactly the same way. But I believe we ought to look up. I believe we ought to be looking up more than we're looking around. And I'll be honest, it seems to me that now as a culture, but especially in 2020, man, we're looking around a lot. And we're talking a lot, and we're hurting a lot, and we're being divisive a lot. I love the way Eugene Peterson writes it in that raw version, the message. If people can't see what God is doing, they stumble all over themselves. But when they attend to what he reveals, they are most blessed. I think the hunger of us, the plea of our heart, the cry is to say, your kingdom come, your will be done. In fact, when the disciples say, Jesus, how should we pray? It's a complex question to which Jesus gives a simple answer. When you pray, you pray this way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You're God and I'm not. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is not about me raising up my own kingdom and then asking you to bless it. It's not about me doing my own thing and thinking my own thoughts and then asking you to bless it. This is about me surrendering my thoughts and surrendering my will and, and, and allowing, inviting, becoming an instrument through which your kingdom might come, your will might be done, not someday, but on earth as it is in heaven. And so I'm, I'm invited into this reality. I believe we ought to look up more. Number two, I believe in the unity of the body of Christ. Ephesians 4 there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. I value the diversity of the kingdom. I, I don't think, do you ever imagine that God is frustrated by our effort to homogenize people? Like, you know, God calls very unique human beings to be people of faith really wacky people. Amen? I mean, strange people with strange habits and strange personality. It calls a lot of them to be pastors. 
I mean, Rick is... I meant to mention this in the first service and I forgot, but, uh, you know, Rick and I have gotten reconnected in the last few years, and I, I really do believe this, and I would not say this otherwise, but you really do have one of the best pastors on the planet. Yeah. And I know a lot of pastors, and you did good. You did good. Treat them well. And Annette, I don't know how you do it, Annette, but God bless you. It's the pastor to the pastor. The keeper, really, if you think about it. The diversity of it. There's just this odd thing that God calls all these weird people from diverse places. And then he asks us to come together to be the diverse body of Christ. I believe in the diversity of the body. We shouldn't look alike. We should be incredibly diverse. But there's just one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is over all and who is in us all. He animates the old ones among us, like the young ones among us, like the weird ones, like the normal ones. One God. I believe in the unity. Number three, I believe in an empowered voice. David hints at the mystical nature of that voice in Psalms 19. I love this passage. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. He's talking about this mystical ability of the Spirit of God to inhabit things in such a way that with no words and with no speech, still the voice is heard. Still the message goes out. You and I are invited to be a part of this empowered voice. In fact, at the birth of the church, that's exactly what's going on. Listen to how Acts 2 reads. When the day of Pentecost came, they were together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Skipping to verse 6. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard in their own, their own language being spoken. And I just think this reality of here's this moment in which there's this empowered voice. At the birth of the church, there's this moment in which these people spill out into the streets and every single person is hearing in their own language. That's a powerful thing to think about. I have a ritual that's developed over the years before I speak. And so every Sunday I kind of go through this ritual. And the last part of Psalms 19 are words that you know. May these words of my mouth and these meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, my God, my rock, my redeemer. And so a long time ago, I started praying that prayer before I would preach. And I would say, okay, God, may these words of my mouth be, you know, ordered by you by, or be pleasing to you. And then I realized I needed something more than that, that that was a little late in the game. And so I started to alter the prayer just a little bit. And so the, the, the way I pray the prayer now is the way the ritual works now is... May the words of my mouth be ordered by and therefore pleasing to you. And, and as God and I have kind of talked about that over the years, I've, I've become more and more convicted of this reality that, that I just wonder why it is that the only time that I feel it necessary to pray that prayer and go through that ritual is when I'm about to speak. That somehow this conversation is somehow supposed to be qualitatively different than other conversations. I did have a professor in seminary, who, a preaching professor, and he used to say, you need to study and prepare until you can confidently stand before people and say, thus saith the Lord. That hasn't happened to me yet. 
At no point have I confidently come on a Sunday feeling like I know exactly what God wants to say to these people and I'm just going to get up there and say it. What I really know is what God is working on in me. The sermon he's been preaching to me and now I'm just going to dump it on the congregation because frankly I'm tired of listening to it. And I wonder why it is that I would pray this prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be ordered by you and therefore pleasing to you. Why I would say that's so important in this conversation, but it's not important in the conversation I'm going to have with my spouse or with my children or in a time like this with people I will meet, with people on my staff, with people of different perspectives and persuasions and politics, that I wouldn't plead with God and say, God, I want you to do work in me. I believe that you have provided this avenue through which there is an empowered voice, but, but an empowered voice is a surrendered voice. It's, it's where I know, and I don't know what you do, but this is what I do. I love God. God loves me. I think it, therefore, he's blessed it, and he thinks it too. Anybody else feel that way? Okay, just me. Thank you. I just figure if I think it, it's evolved over time into the right thing. I wouldn't think it if I didn't think it was right. But there's something about it confessing this, and there's something about saying this, and there's something about praying this. God, would you reorder the thoughts that are going on inside of me, therefore the words that are coming out of my mouth, and not just in this conversation that happens publicly, but in the private conversations, in the one-on-one moments, in the places where I really don't know how to navigate, in the places where I feel my inside sort of curling up because I, I don't like what's getting said. Can I invite the kingdom of God to be present there? Can I please and pray, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be ordered by you and therefore pleasing to you. I don't want to assume anymore that I'm speaking. God and I have a little joke about this because I don't know about, I I feel anxious every Sunday. I have a junior high pastor. He's he's probably the greatest junior high pastor in the world. And he, uh, he is super odd. I mean, and I think it's why he connects with junior high kids. I mean, he just, he just has issues, and junior high kids have issues, and so they just all have issues together. It's a, it's a beautiful thing to watch from a distance. <laughs> but he doesn't eat on Saturday or Sunday morning because he gets so anxious when he's going to talk to the junior high kids that he'll throw up if he eats. I love that about him. Amen? I, I love the fact that he takes it so seriously that something in his insides are churning and there's an anxiety about stepping into this space because that's a lot of pressure. Thus saith the Lord. And so God and I have a little joke. kind of relieves my anxiety a little bit. <laughs> And sometimes after church, you know, people will be coming out of the service and, and somebody will slow down and they'll shake my hand and they'll look me in the eye and say, Pastor Dave, today when you said blah, 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 oh, my life changed. It's good stuff. And I know I didn't say it. I know those words did not come out of my mouth. And it's the Holy Spirit just tapping me on the shoulder and saying, you know, I don't really need you. I could actually get the word to the people without you, but I choose you. 
So don't be getting all up in yourself. (laughs) And don't be getting all anxious. Because if it's a surrendered voice, it's an empowered voice. And I will do the things that need to get done. I don't want to get ahead yet. Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. And, one of, and all of them, filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. These disciples are being given an empowered voice. And so if you follow along the logic of Luke and the construction of his two volumes of writing, then you know that over in the Gospel of Luke, we're learning about the content of the kingdom and the structure of the kingdom and the teaching of Jesus and the vision of the kingdom. And It's kind of a philosophical study over there about the nature of the kingdom. And then in Luke's understanding, we move into the Acts of the Apostles, and the Acts of the Apostles are the implementation, the early stumbling implementation of this concept of all the things that have been taught in the gospel into real life. And it's a beautiful story of stumbling human beings with no hierarchy, with no structure, with with very little things written down, trying to figure out how to bring the kingdom of God alive on earth, and in an imperfect way, they're trying to figure it out. And so, you know, they they just don't really know what to do. Acts 1.8, you know, uh, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who you've seen taken away will come again. So, in other words, Jesus is saying, stop staring into heaven and get to work. The philosophical time's over. It's time to implement the kingdom. I think sometimes we get stuck there, don't we? I'm just going to philosophically, I'll value the kingdom, but the virtues that I put into practice in the world. So I see four things going on in, in this moment of implementation and this empowerment, this birthday of the church that I think mattered to us this morning. Number one, they waited together. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. This is a tired old passage in which we've heard a million sermons talked about, about they are all together in one accord, yada, 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 yada. I don't think we do justice to what's happening here. It's the day of Pentecost. It's 50 days post-Passover. We know that it is a required, in fact, what we understand from the story is because Pentecost takes place in the spring, that more people attended Pentecost than attended Passover. So we have this diverse group of pilgrims of Jews who've gathered into the city of Jerusalem. And now we have this group of people, and they're diverse. I mean, I think we think of the early Christians as being sort of all, you know, generically together. But even at the table of Jesus, the disciples aren't the same. You know, on one end of that table, you have Simon the Zealot. And Simon the Zealot is a militant. He's a part of the Zealots. The Zealots are a militant group who, by military force, want to overthrow the Roman government. That's Simon, Simon the disciple, for whom my grandson is named. I don't know what that means. but. And then on the other end of the table, you have Matthew. Matthew's a tax collector. Matthew is collaborating with the Romans in order to get rich. And these two people have become disciples of Jesus. I don't think their politics lined up much, do you? And so then I think about these people in the upper room, these early followers, these folks who have gathered, and some of them have come out of strict Judaism. Some of them are rule followers. They're, 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 they are the people who have been steeped in the pharisaical traditions, and they know everything there is to know about Jewish law. And others of them have been saved right out of Hellenistic paganism. That They are Greeks who have been saved out of a system of gods and goddesses, and there they all are, now followers of Jesus Christ in their infancy with all of their diversity, and they're sitting in that space. The church is going to spill out from here, and it's going to occupy thousands of little home churches. So I don't think this is about they're all in one place. It's not about a geographical location, and it's certainly not about a perspective. It's about this one thing. They are waiting together. 
and they're waiting together on God. It seems to me that if we're going to speak with empowered voices into this culture and into this world, it's because we learn to wait together. People of diverse perspectives and diverse backgrounds and differences and all of that stuff, we learn to wait together. We're waiting for the same thing. We're waiting on God. We're waiting for something to happen. We're anticipating God's intervention in very specific ways into our life, into our journey, into our culture. We wait together. It's what Isaiah is talking about in Isaiah 40. Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard that the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, faints not? Neither does he grow weary. There's no end to his understanding. Even the youth shall faint grow weary, and the young men will stumble and fall. But those that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. Isaiah is writing these words to exilic Israel, to those people who've been completely disenfranchised. They've been carried off by the Babylonians. They're no longer at home. Things are falling apart. They don't know how to cope. What do you do at a time like that? You wait. You wait upon the Lord. The early church waited upon the Lord. Number two, everybody doing okay? Is this normal? All right. You know, there's a, there's a terror of being a public speaker, and that is that you would bore people. And in these times, you have a lot of people that are joining us online. Welcome. And I know that what people are online, you know, their attention span is like two minutes. I mean, you know, we may already be at popcorn level at this point in people's homes. And then you folks are captive, and you don't know where to go. They waited together. Number two, they heard from above. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the room. I don't hear a lot of sounds like blowing winds hearing from heaven. I've always wanted to. I've always wanted to be that prophetic voice that could tell a story, you know, and then God spoke to me. Or, you know, then there was a writing on the wall and I got a message. But that's never happened to me yet. Mostly it's working out things with fear and trembling. And I admire people that feel very confident about, oh, this is what, oh, this is the message. And people are very confident today, aren't they? I know a lot of people that are confident. And then I start to ask myself this question, what percentage of my time in prayer is spent in which I am not filling up the space with my worries or my issues or my anxiety? When am I not telling God what I think he ought to be doing? How often am I genuinely waiting and listening for a word from above? Because I do think God still speaks. I do still think God makes himself known. And if the scripture is true, that there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is over all and in us all, it seems to me that as we all get in touch with that, as we wait together, old people, young people, people of diverse political perspectives, as we all wait together, we're going to hear some things. We're going to be listening in a way that God gets to speak. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be ordered by you and therefore pleasing to you. Because I don't really trust myself to decipher and understand. I don't know much, even though I believe a lot of things. Number three, they saw the diversity. 
They saw what seemed to be fires that separated and came to rest on them. I love this part. I mean, if, if, if I could have this happen, this would be the thing I would choose. And here's the reason. I don't know what it would have been like for you to be in that upper room, but here's what I would have been thinking. Evidently, they had hung out for a while. And I would guess that by now that they had started to annoy one another. Because that's what people do when they hang out together. And I would have thought this would be a fascinating little thing. That this sign from heaven, this ball of fire descended. And then it separated and tongues of fire went and hovered above the heads of all the people that were included. I don't know about you, but I would have been sitting there thinking, them too? Not that guy. That guy is so annoying. I mean, just imagine, wouldn't that be awesome at Thanksgiving when you gather your family around the table? Because I don't know about you, but not everybody in my family aligns politically. Just me. You guys are just leaving me out here. You're just leaving me hanging. I mean, sometimes, you know, around the table, you know, you, you, you start to go, oh, let's steer away from it. No, let's, okay, this is the warning shot. Let's, no, we, you know, I know where this ends and we're not, wouldn't it be awesome if the, just a big ball of fire descended down at the Thanksgiving table and you got to see who was included and who wasn't? <laughs> wouldn't that be awesome? You, you know, you might theoretically go to one of your son-in-laws and say, Dude, you got no tongue of fire. I've been trying to tell you. <laughs> I like all my son-in-laws. Imagine that at the birth of the church, there was a visible representation of the diversity. Without any misunderstanding, they looked around that room and they said, You too? You too? You got included too? You too? You from the Hellenistic pagan background, you, you from the, the state old Judaism, you too, you got included too. They must have left that upper room and they must have thought, I, I don't even, I can't even fathom what this new kingdom is going to look like. I would have never chosen all of those different people to flood out into the street. But God did. And finally, not only did they see the diversity, but... Number four, they were given the appropriate language to speak. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. And they were able to have each person hear in their own language. Listen, it seems to me that the empowering of the Holy Spirit is what allows us to speak the words that people need to hear. That somehow there's something mystical that goes on inside of us that, that the Holy Spirit can allow us, can use us to speak in ways that allows people to, to hear in their own language. And I don't know about you, but I don't speak the same language as my children. And, and my oldest daughter is 36 and my youngest daughter is 23. Let me tell you, they did not grow up in the same culture. They're different. This is a diverse world we live in. When, when I left Kansas City, Olathe, Kansas, that's where we lived, Olathe, Kansas. Let me tell you something. Over in Olathe, Kansas in 1985 to 88, it was not a diverse community. You understand what I'm saying? See me? That's what everybody looked like. 
and just like me and some other me's and it was us. Just us. And we got on, packed up and we drove to California and we moved into this beautiful little community called Montrose, unincorporated part of L.A. County. We're about five miles from the Rose Bowl. You know, when you're watching a football game and they pan over the Rose Bowl and you see the mountains, and the, that's our neighborhood. You should be jealous. <laughs> it's a crazy place, but it's a beautiful place. We enrolled our then five-year-old in kindergarten at the local public school. There were 23 language groups represented in her kindergarten class. The world is not white. The world is diverse. And the world that my children have grown up in is a world that is full of diversity at levels that is sometimes completely overpowering and completely inconvenient. And sometimes it's completely terrifying. But it is also incredibly good. And it is good for them to understand it. And it is good for us to know this. The empowering of the Holy Spirit allows us to speak into the diversity of our world. Because God has already, at the very beginning, said, if you'll wait and if you'll listen, and if you will see the diversity, I will empower your voice to speak the language that needs to be heard. Now, this is where this gets really practical. You're a diverse crowd. I mean, I see some of you that look younger. Some of you are younger. <laughs> and I see some of you that look older. Whether you are or not, maybe life's just been hard. <laughs> but you look older. So I'm assuming there's some diversity of age here. Here's what I believe. You need to find your voice. Because every person here, a surrendered voice to the Holy Spirit is an empowered voice. And some of you will speak to different groups of people at different times. And, 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 and wouldn't it be appropriate, knowing this, Knowing that at the very outset, at the birth of the church, when all of the concepts started to become practical, when it was no longer about sitting in class and philosophically debating about how it worked, when it was time to implement, when it was time to plead, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, wouldn't it be appropriate to say out loud, I, I believe a lot of stuff, but I don't know much. Therefore, I am waiting and listening and opening my arms to the diversity of the kingdom so that God might order the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth so that I might speak the language that this person needs to hear, that this person I encounter at the grocery store or this person that I encounter at work or the children who will sit around my table, the in-laws and outlaws that will gather at Thanksgiving. I want to have the right words to say, but I don't know what they are. But I serve a God who empowers my voice. I believe that. I believe it matters. I wonder how often it is that you and I say, before I have this talk, before I say this, before I write this post, before I shoot this out into the universe, before I subtly help people know what I believe, shouldn't I stop? I mean, I would bet this. I would bet that when, you, when, when I say to you, I'm going to come and I'm going to speak and da 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 and you go, well, I hope, I hope he prepares. I hope something happens. I hope... You know, and I say to you, I pray this prayer, this is my ritual, may the words of my mouth, meditation of heart be where you're like, good for you, you should. 
sermon boy, turn it out. And yet how many of us would go, well, I think that's so appropriate for him. I don't think I need to do that. Because somehow this conversation is more important than the conversation I might have with someone I don't know on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. Or the, the conversation I'm about to have face-to-face with somebody that I know does not believe the same things I believe. Wouldn't I be pleading? Wouldn't I be, how, how can I help the kingdom to come? Because listen, I, I want to tell you this. We need the diversity of the kingdom of God. We are an intergenerational congregation, an intergenerational church. God forbid that we would ever become the church of the old people or the church of the young people. We ought to be the church of the diversity. We ought to be different colors and different races. We ought to be different persuasions. We ought to be different age groups. You ought to walk into this place. This should be the safest place on earth. It should be the most loving place on the planet. And because of that, it ought to be filled with diversity. Because why? Because we are not the police of culture. We are people who wait on the Holy Spirit to form us into one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God who is Father. There's just one head. We got to quit worrying about, we got to quit looking around and start looking up. I don't know about you, but I think this. I think this. I think, you know, as a pastor, I have enormous pressure to say some things publicly, which is fun because, you know, I could offend half my congregation at any, at, on any Sunday. I could lose half the congregation to just, just to make a proclamation. I think when we're put into that space where we're supposed to take a stand, I try to say this to people when they push me. Here's the thing. I believe a lot of things, but I don't know much. Here's something I really believe. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin and change people's lives. And if I have a weak theology of the Holy Spirit, I need to get out of this business. Because if the day comes that I believe that my wisdom is what has to change people's lives, oh, Lord, is everybody in trouble? (laughs) That's not what I'm about. That's not who I am. That's not what a pastor does. I share with you the journey I'm on. I share with you what God is teaching me. I share with you the places where I struggle. Because the Holy Spirit's working on me, and I believe the Holy Spirit's working on you. And when I become entrenched in the things that I think I know, I stop waiting upon God, and I stop listening And I stop embracing the diversity that has always been the kingdom of God. And I stop having an empowered voice to speak the language people need to hear. When I came to this church in 1978, I walked into the sanctuary on the first Sunday. And back in those days, Pastor G would uh, do this thing. He would do this thing. Some of you were not born when he was doing this thing. But it would come prayer time and, and, and the, the, the curtains would begin to drop and the lights would begin to go down and the choir would stand and they would sing this song, all your anxieties, all your cares, bring to the mercy seat, leave them there. And the altars would open and the curtains would open at the back and people would come from all over the room and they would kneel all the way around behind you know, there'd just be this mass outpouring of people. And as a 
kid, you know, 18-year-old kid showing up at college, I was like, whoa, there's an altar call in the middle of the service. There's a lot of sinners in this church. And Punter would stand in front of everybody and he would say, just where you are, I want you to hold your hands out in front of you. He would, he would do this multiple times, not every Sunday, but a lot. I want you to hold your hands. And people across the room would, we would physically stand and we'd hold our hands out. And he would say, I want you to gather all the worries and fears you have. All the things that are causing you anxiety. I, I want you to gather, take them one by one and place them in your hands. And I'm going to tell you, those years I did over and over and over. Kid trying to figure out what life's about. Trying to go to class. Trying to understand. And Ponder would say, just put it all in your hands. Just pull it all out. And then he would say, just turn your hands over. Just leave it here. Folks, we so need God to just enter into a moment with us where we wait and we say, you know what, all my stuff, the way I think about the world and the culture and the stuff that crashes in on me and the fear I have and the anxiety I have, God is so much bigger than all of that. And he invites us, will we wait together? Will we listen? Because he'll speak. Will we recognize the great diversity of the kingdom of God? One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Will we love each other like that? Will we value each other like that? Will we look at each other and say, I'm so glad you're here. You are so not like me. You so believe so many things I don't. You are so weird. And I'm so glad you're here. I am so glad we're doing this together. Because you see what I can't see. You feel what I can't feel. You understand what I will never understand. I need you. I need you to be my hands and my feet and my eyes and my understanding. I need you. We need each other. We've got to quit beating each other up. And so this morning, maybe you just want to turn your hands over and say, I'm going to leave a whole bunch of stuff here. I'm not going to take it out into this week. And I'm going to pray, God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be ordered by and therefore pleasing to you. God, would you help us? Please, God, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray in Jesus' name. You have been listening to a message from Bethany First Church of the Nazarene. Visit us online at bethanynaz.org.